Imagine a coast-to-coast trip on primitive dirt roads where your average speed is a blistering six miles an hour. For an army convoy out to show a route from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco could be developed, it was worth every destroyed bridge, road accident, flat tire, and washout. The adventure that started this week 100 years ago took two months to complete, and it gave rise to then-Lieutenant Colonel Dwight Eisenhower's interstate highway system. Today, some sections of the network are subject to more weather-related challenges than even the parade of World War I vintage trucks had to manage. Preparing America's infrastructure for the next natural disaster is our topic today, as we explore plans to implement the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. It's not hard to find agreement with the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But it took an act of Congress to get agreement on this notion as it relates to spending tax dollars on disaster mitigation versus disaster cleanup. Pamela Williams is the executive director of the Build Strong Coalition, a group of firefighters, emergency responders, insurance companies, engineers, architects, contractors, and others who battled for passage of the act and now are working to get it on the street. Before that, she was on the Hill, where she played a major role in writing the bill passed last year. Williams joined us in the studio recently to discuss the law, the need for a new perspective on federal disaster assistance, and plans to help put key pieces of the act into motion. Resilience has always been a very important conversation. I started this journey back in the mid-90s when I walked levees at midnight in the 93 floods in Des Moines, Iowa. And... At that point in time, in the wake of those floods, um, James Lee Witt, who was the then administrator of FEMA, implemented a program called Project Impact. And it was a locally focused mitigation program where communities were able to identify their greatest risks and hazards, and they were given federal resources to help draw down those risks and hazards. So this is not a new conversation. And when we're talking about disaster mitigation We are talking about the consequences that are founded in science and facts. And whatever is causing it, we know that disasters cause significant impacts. We know that there is a tremendous amount of infrastructure in this country that is in harm's way. So how do we either remove it from harm's way, protect it, build it better, and protect lives and property and save taxpayer dollars. Because what we have done in this country is the trajectory on disaster spending is off the charts and not sustainable. And the federal government is having to further inject more and more money. But if we could do something on the front end and move that investment to the pre-disaster and make that wise investment, we are seeing anywhere from a one to four return on that investment to a one to $10, $11, $12 return on investment when we're doing the right things. And that is everything from investing in stronger materials, stronger building strategies, implementing codes and standards. So it really is a community-based conversation and has been for so very long so that you can identify the specific hazards and then the projects that are going to draw down those hazards. There do seem to be more events, though, occurring. Even the statistics that you've had online show that we're dealing with more of this every year. It certainly does seem that way, that that we are dealing with not only more frequent events, but more intense events that 
because of everything from population density are having greater impacts. So no matter what, the consequences are much more severe. The Build Strong Coalition is about seven years old? Correct. So about seven years old and has actively been driving this conversation, um, particularly with regard to how to incentivize the adoption of codes and standards and how to increase resilience across the country. And so I would say that they really became active about three years ago when the then chairman of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, Bill Schuster, started the conversation of how do we draw down disaster costs and losses? And how do we bend this cost curve? Because this trajectory just is not sustainable. So Chairman Schuster was looking for key strategic partners that could bring, you know, the technical expertise, the science, and the knowledge about this conversation to the table and highlight it for the policymakers so that they could make better decisions um, and drive legislation that would hopefully remove some of those bad incentives we have in place and help reform disaster recovery law. So when he started that conversation, Build Strong um, started a partnership with us, certainly engaged with many roundtables and technical panels and conversations testified before Congress. And then 2017 happened. And we had Harvey, Irma, and Maria, three catastrophic hurricanes uh, that significantly impacted so much of the United States. And Chairman Schuster and then our subcommittee chairman, Lou Barletta, also from Pennsylvania, saw it as their imperative that they take up legislation to ensure that one, the impacts that were experienced in those disasters are not experienced again, and two, that the recovery was placed on a track to be as efficient and effective for those disaster survivors as possible. So at the time, I was on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, and I was given an opportunity to work with all of our key stakeholders and the members that were directly impacted and challenged to draft up the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. And thankfully, everyone realized that the things that were promoted from resilience to efficiency to use of technology, it's the right conversation. And thanks to the support of the Build Strong Coalition and so many others, we were able to bring that to fruition. And it was enacted in law in 2018. And FEMA is actively engaged in the adoption, in the implementation of that, along with key federal partners like DOT, HUD, and some others. Before we talk about the work to implement the law, let's talk about the law. What are the key pieces of it? So I would say the most transformational piece within the Disaster Recovery Reform Act is the set aside of an additional 6% annual disaster funding for pre-disaster mitigation. This does not need to be appropriated. It is automatically generated, no year money. How much? So it's going to change every year based on how much spending happens every year in disasters. Had FEMA captured the 2017 storms, they'd be at almost $4 billion in this pot of money. Right now, we're looking at about $300 million to $500 million based on current disaster spending. But certainly in landmark years, there's going to be a lot more money. So this represents consistent, significant, reliable funding for state and local governments for pre-disaster mitigation. 
Previously, the program that had existed before the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, it was not reliable. The administration had, both parties had signaled it for closeout, zeroing out at least three times. And so this took it out of the hands of the appropriators and now creates this pot of money. It's going to be competitive. It's going to be focused on risk-reducing, cost-effective infrastructure investments that are made at the state and local level in partnership with the private sector to change the face of resilience across the country. And that I'm so honored because the previous FEMA administrator, Brock Long, as we were drafting it and certainly in the wake of its passage, you know, deemed this transformational. We know that money changes the conversation. We know that money drives people's behavior. And to be told that making this policy change and making sure that this money is available and in the hands of of state and locals is transformational, that's very humbling. Um, So I would say that that's one of the most transformational pieces um, within the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. But the wonderful thing about the Recovery Act is that it's an intricate puzzle piece of removing those bad incentives and rewarding good behavior. We did everything from telling FEMA to work with DOT to set strong guidance on evacuation routes so that evacuation routes are built right and are maintained in a way that support locals' ability to get people out of harm's way when a crisis is happening. So that is something that there had not been comprehensive guidance and certainly had not been in the DOT conversation. Like, do you need to build things in and around the infrastructure around an evacuation route differently? Yes, you do. Because we've seen pipes popping out of ground because of water inundation. We've seen fire actually being transported through certain types of pipes because the infrastructure wasn't resiliently designed. Particularly for evacuation routes, these things need to be taken into consideration. One of the things that was so important and recognized by the leadership of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee was the need to build a capacity at the state and local level. So many locals, the mayor is the public works director, is the city clerk, is doing everything. (laughs) And so when crisis hits, They don't have any bandwidth and they're certainly not going to have a conversation about how do we do this better. They're just worried about, I've got to get people back to work. I've got to get the power back on. I've got to get the water out of here. How do we create a capacity to support them to have the right conversations, to put the right things in place before disaster strikes? And so one of the provisions within the Disaster Recovery Reform Act provides resources so that state and local government can actually avail themselves to the experts out there that do this for a living. State and local governments have money available to them on a reimbursement basis so that they can hire the appropriate folks that have done this. There are people that are experts in this. And to help lead the way for not only how you can plan and identify hazards and identify projects that are going to reduce those hazards. But when FEMA money becomes available, how you're going to administer that money. Because as we all know, spending federal money is not easy. And that is one of the things that we're encountering that so many states and locals just don't even have the capacity to do. So how do we create an environment and a capacity where state and local governments 
have the ability to spend this money right. It helps the federal government because the IG is not coming back after the money. It helps the state and local governments because they're spending it in the way that policymakers have envisioned and FEMA has administered the program. So it helps everyone up and down the line. And it saves money because they're doing it effectively. They're doing it efficiently. Money is not being recouped. Money is not being deobligated. It's not being questioned. It reduces fraud. All of those good benefits are following up and down the line so that the right thing gets done because clearly Congress wants to invest in this. They have shown us time and time again, post-disaster, they want money to go towards rebuilding. Don't we want that money to go towards rebuilding in a better way? So that's another thing. There seems to be this misunderstanding that FEMA can only build back what is there. Not true, has never been true, and the Disaster Recovery Reform Act absolutely clarified that. And the policymakers in Congress made it easier for FEMA to facilitate building back better. So in the wake of a disaster, FEMA absolutely has the ability to provide additional funds so that you can build in mitigation and resilience measures into that project. So one of the best ways to do that is adopt a higher standard code at the local level. So communities like Harris County in Texas, post-Harvey, has adopted the highest freeboard standards in the country because they realize this keeps happening to us. So now FEMA has to help them rebuild to those higher standards. But it makes sense because we're avoiding future disaster recovery costs. Those investments up front make sense. We're getting a return on that investment. And we're seeing that more and more across the country. As a matter of fact, even Puerto Rico, that is really, really struggling with their recovery. Puerto Rico has adopted some really exciting mitigation measures that they're building into their recovery because they realize that this federal investment, they can leverage it so that they're going to be stronger. They don't have to rebuild it the exact way that it was. It's unfortunate that it takes a tragedy to learn these things, but it doesn't make sense to people outside these areas uh, when we see billions of dollars going into a recovery simply to just put it all back the way it was so that next year it can be washed away again. Unfortunately, I've seen this happen time and time again. We focus on this in a crisis, and then everyone gets disaster fatigue and stops thinking about it. The wonderful thing about the resilience conversation is it is an everyday blue sky conversation that certainly when the storm hits, it highlights that we haven't had enough of that resilient conversation, but this is putting focus on the right actions and incentivizing those right actions up front. And I love that there are so many people engaged in this conversation in so many lines of business. I've talked with energy folks. I've talked with water folks at EPA, certainly HUD and housing and DOT and FEMA, because the unfortunate thing for state and locals, there's a lot of activity going on in this area at the federal level, in the federal family. They are not coordinated. So it is incumbent on state and local governments to find those different lines of funding and how to synergize them and leverage them against each other and time them right. It's like what project should be funded with what. So I will say New York OMB post Sandy did a wonderful job at doing that. Now, New York OMB, larger than most countries OMB, big 
sophisticated organization. They know what they're doing, but you know what? They also hired really good experts at Ernst and Young to help them make good decisions. There are federal resources available to reimburse those costs for making those prudent government decisions. So they realized that there were a lot of resources coming in, and they did. There is one hospital in New York that has a single project, mitigation project, that was built in as part of the recovery, an additional $400 million of federal resources went to rebuilding. So that's not the rebuild cost. That was just the mitigation aspect of it, an additional $400 million to rebuild it right and to make sure that the federal government was not going to have to pay to recover that hospital again. Does the act help those communities that don't have a New York organization at their disposal cut through all of that red tape and get those departments and those actions and those services coordinated? Does it help? I mean, there are a lot of cities and counties that are well run. They're just not big enough to even do that. Right. So on a reimbursable basis, absolutely. When you do get FEMA FEMA funds and when you're applying for FEMA funds, you get administrative and management costs that are reimbursable up to a certain percentage. And that's huge because before the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, a lot of local governments couldn't even tap into those resources. So as a community is prioritizing how to have this conversation, they know that there are going to be resources available to help them do this right. That is a force multiplier. And one of the things, kudos to FEMA. FEMA has been out across the country providing technical assistance. And the wonderful thing about the Build Strong Coalition is we've taken our partners to be force multipliers and to help with that education and technical assistance because we want everyone to get to the right answer. That's a different answer in multiple different communities. So we are leveraging our university partners. We are leveraging our state and local partners. We're leveraging our private sector partners. Because this conversation is so large that everyone should be engaged as a good community partner. I've had conversations with major, major private power entities that have now developed an entire line of business related to resiliency, and they are issuing microgrants to help communities do the right thing. So I get so excited when the private sector starts doing that because they realize they're a force multiplier in providing not only technical assistance, but the support and leverage to help these communities that are strapped have the right conversation because we're only as strong as our weakest link. And when we build this strong community, the private sector is stronger, the public sector is stronger, and that's how we're protecting ourselves from disasters. So let's talk about then the grant program. We've spent a lot of time on the policy level. Let's focus now on the implementation level. You said the first pot of money is about 300 to 500 million. Is that right? Is that available right now or does it start October 1st? What's the, what's the lay of the land? So FEMA is building upon an existing grant program. FEMA is taking the pre-disaster mitigation program, the PDM program, and building upon it with these new authorities that they were given in the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. So they just released the projects that have been approved for the 2018 pre-disaster mitigation program. And then they are going to release the guidance for the 2019 program, 
with some of the expanded authorities that were provided in the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. So some of those include eligible projects. There had been some confusion at FEMA and at least some inconsistency at FEMA as to some eligible projects. So certainly related to earthquake resiliency, wildfire resiliency. So the legislation actually makes clear certain measures that are absolutely eligible mitigation measures under these FEMA programs. So they're rolling that in to this 2019 issuance that will likely be available in October and be issued on the same, similar to the same timeline as 2018. So probably the first of the year, we'll see that go out. So one of the things that the Build Strong Coalition is very, very much focused on, because FEMA sees this next, this 2019 tranche of money as really a capacity builder to prime the pump, so to speak, and to help position communities and states best to be able to apply for this bigger money that they are calling Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, brick. Very appropriate. Um, so this 2019 money to build capacity, to increase the ability to be successful with the more money, the more consistent, reliable money that's going to be coming year after year after year. So Build Strong is very, very focused on that and identifying what do communities and states need to help them Some of them need to start the conversation, like what hazards are we facing? And then what sort of projects are going to help draw down those hazards, cost-effective, risk-reducing projects? Other states are incredibly sophisticated that have had this conversation for years. They know how to have this conversation. But now they're dealing with so many more resources that are going to be available. How do you help them prioritize those projects that are best suited to meet the needs on a strategic statewide level? One of the things that the Build Strong Coalition has done specifically related to this new BRIC program and what's leading up to it with the pre-disaster mitigation program, we have set three regional forums that are going to take place to bring together FEMA leadership. Um, We're doing this in partnership with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and then our strategic partners, state and local government, insurance, engineers, materials folks to sit down and have a substantive, meaningful conversation about what this money is, what it can be used for, and how to apply for it. So we're highlighting best practices. We're highlighting potential challenges and how to resolve those challenges. And we've got FEMA there at the table so that they're hearing this truly from the horse's mouth, what industry needs to be a successful partner in this, what applicants need to be a successful partner in this, and what the science and technology is saying about the resilience conversation to help drive the grant guidance, the grant implementation, and how FEMA is going to be working as the administrator of these grants. Eligible applicants are state governments. Communities can be sub-applicants. So we've talked a lot with FEMA about how public-private partnerships can fold into that. This was something that we talked with them about in the drafting of the language because there is a tremendous amount of opportunity there. We've seen it all over how the private sector can lend not only its resources but its expertise in helping communities make better decisions and get a better result. We're working with FEMA on what projects that could be public-private partnerships look like 
And that might be anywhere from potential hazardous property acquisition. So the buyout program, could that be something that the private sector could help in leveraging and building resilience into infrastructure? I think GSA has shown us that there have been successful public-private partnerships in improving infrastructure and federal assets through partnerships. So we're working with FEMA on how to make a project that looks like that eligible because FEMA recognizes that it's a huge opportunity. We recognize that it's a huge opportunity. So state and local governments are the people that get the money, but they absolutely need the involvement of the entire community to help get to the right answer. State and local governments have to have a comprehensive hazard mitigation plan. So they need help in devising that. And then they need help in identifying projects that have to be, by the law, cost-effective, risk-reducing. FEMA's requirement is for a cost-benefit analysis of one. You have to get a return on that investment. And that sometimes is, is challenging, but when you're looking at infrastructure, not, not so very challenging. Because what you're doing is you are avoiding future disaster costs. So if you can show a property that's been damaged, if you can show the likelihood of future damage and the avoidance of that future damage, there's your cost-benefit analysis. Definitely states and communities are going to need help and assistance in how to do that technical aspect. So we are working, the Build Strong Coalition is working with FEMA on kind of pre-approved projects and what those look like. So already FEMA has embraced certain things like safe rooms um, because you can't put a cost on a life. (laughs) Right. Um, But things like wind retrofits for homes. So when you tie down your roof, Um, You use tie-downs to retrofit your home so your roof doesn't blow off in a hurricane. The Build Strong Coalition has partnered with the Institute for Business and Home Safety, which is wholly a scientific institute. So they actually build homes and then burn them down or inundate them with water or try to destroy them. them. And then test certain techniques on what alleviates that damage. So they're doing a whole testing scheme for how we can incentivize individual homeowners in doing just those things and how there can be federal funds available to help homeowners fund those things so that you don't have homeowner damage, which is huge. The money can be used for consultants, experts, planning help. It can be used to actually build things on construction projects, whatever those might be according to the guidelines that are being put together. Uh, It can be used to fix things or repair things. Sounds like there's a lot of flexibility. One of the stories that I love to tell is that in 9-11, FEMA did exactly what it was supposed to do. It didn't matter what caused the catastrophe. They are consequence managers because of this broad base of authorities to clean up the mess. Every disaster is different, and every community is different. And I will tell you, having been now in hundreds of disasters, to each community, it is a catastrophe. Giving FEMA the flexibility that it needs to adjust to the unique challenges posed by a community is essential to its success. So that is something that was absolutely maintained by the policy makers within the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. So there is a tremendous amount of flexibility and opportunity within the BRIC program. 
literally the law requires cost-effective risk-reducing. That means something very different in California than it does in Colorado, than it does in Pennsylvania. It's a program that can be adjusted to meet the needs of all of those communities. So these can be small projects. These can be flood control projects. These can be wildfire-related projects. These can be wind-related projects. These can also be larger-scale projects. There has been a concern that has been raised to me that all of this money is going to be swept by core projects. Well, one, the law forbids duplication of benefits. So if the core is funding something, this money is not going to fund it. It also has to be prioritized by the state. So the state's setting a strategic priority for where the available funds are going to go. This is in line with all of the different lines of funding. So the state has visibility on multiple lines of federal funding that are coming down. So they're going to see this and hopefully be very strategic about where this line of funding should go and where these funds should be directed. And honestly, I don't know many governors that are going to suck up all the money into a large flood diversion project when they realize that they're going to be able to leverage that money as a force multiplier in a lot of their communities. One of the things that I love to tell is, you know, something as easy as a pole replacement. So a utility pole replacement with a higher standard, more resilient material pole. On the front end, you know, you're looking in the thousands of dollars to make that investment per pole versus a potential $100,000 investment on the back end. Communities that have, you know, co-ops and municipal utilities are absolutely able to make that investment. And that's one of the things that Build Strong is really trying to do is how to identify those best practices. Like where have we seen mitigation projects make the biggest impact? And what do those projects look like? Because so many of these communities don't know how to have that conversation and aren't even aware of it. So how do we create an environment where those are highlighted and people are able to talk about, we did this and we're able to have no impacts from Hurricane Irma? And then how to replicate that from the FEMA level to have them actually show, yes, this is an approved project, be it a safe room, a wind retrofit, a flood elevation project. So FEMA's working on having kind of a menu of available projects to help prime the pump so that communities know like what kinds of things that we're talking about. But also there's an ability for a community be, to be completely creative. And that's the exciting conversation is when the private sector comes and helps the community have a conversation like, have you thought about this project? Like, we know from the science and the technology that if you built X piece of infrastructure differently, you would be more resilient and you would be able to survive the next storm. Like, we know that that floods. We know that that's going to fall down in the next earthquake. The sky's the limit. We have no idea what amazing things can be accomplished that are going to absolutely prevent future disaster costs and losses. Is the goal to spend the money entirely every year? Or if you don't spend it all, does it accumulate? How does that work? So the beauty of this money is it is no year money. And not only is it no year money, but communities have seven years to spend it, to obligate it. If they don't spend it, it gets swept and put back in the pot. It doesn't go back to the treasury. 
And that is a unique thing. Most people don't realize that a lot of grant funds, when they're not spent, go back to the treasury. This goes back to the pot to be recompeted as part of this money. So FEMA is grappling with that question right now of like, how will they try to normalize it? So like, let's say we had gone from almost $4 billion and now down to half a billion dollars. How do we normalize that? And so they're discussing if there needs to be some sort of mechanism because they absolutely have the flexibility to do that. So if they say wanted to just push out a billion dollars every year, they could and then keep the rest in the pot to keep accumulating so they could make sure that there is some sense of normalcy and a median range in there. The money doesn't expire. And when the money gets swept, if it can't be used for whatever reason, it goes back into the pot to be spent. Um, that That's a huge benefit of the program. I think also getting the private sector engaged too, because I'm thinking of former colleagues of mine who build things. You know, they go in for an RFP, they're talking about building this project. If they're informed also about these sorts of building practices, I think they could probably drive that conversation back to the owner. We see the private sector as a force multiplier in this conversation. If you want it done faster or cheaper, you never ask the federal government to do it. We find our best practices driven by the private sector. Um, we've seen it, you know, certainly in engineering and infrastructure, in the power sector, certainly water. The involvement of technology and the use of new building techniques, FEMA's not going to get involved in that. Got to get people at the local level to enforce the right codes and standards. It has to be founded in an analysis and in facts and science. So therein lies a great amount of flexibility because FEMA is not only adhering to what the Corps wants to do or what EPA wants to do. What's the biggest challenge now here in 2019 with getting all of this out into the states, into the communities? Knowledge and education. Awareness. Because the number of people that have come to me that haven't even heard about the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, the number of people at the community level that are unaware of FEMA's mitigation programs and what FEMA is trying to accomplish both pre- and post-disaster. I get it. It's wonky. It's nuanced. It's difficult. It's federal funding. I would say that knowledge and, and experience and confidence that you can engage the right people to get to the right answer. Congress gave FEMA some amazing rules and tools. So that is the top down and FEMA is setting its policy and and putting the grant money in place and going to roll out that money. It is creating that capacity and understanding at that local level. That's going to be the heavy lift because there is a huge gap in knowledge, understanding, and capacity. Not a lot of people get to say they wrote a law that is now having this kind of an impact on what could be, you know, the next hundred years of life in America. How does that feel? Um, honestly, it is, it is my life's passion. I'm deeply entrenched, pun intended, um, in the disaster world. And the opportunity that was presented to me by congressional leadership and by the stakeholders and the faith that has been placed in me to do the right thing and to continue to drive the right conversation is truly humbling because we do have an opportunity to do the right thing. And there are many, many resources available that Congress wants to put in the hands of the right people. 
there's so many people that want to do the right thing. They just need help in doing it. You know, it's far from perfect. And there are a lot of people involved in making it happen. But I do believe that it is a transformational piece of legislation and will be driving this conversation for decades to come. And I'm hoping that 50 years from now, we're having a very different conversation in the wake of catastrophic disasters like Harvey or Maria because communities made the right choices. Next week, Michael Johnson, president and CEO of the National Stone, Sand, and Gravel Association, joins us to talk federal policy and its impact on the aggregates industry. That's Wednesday, July 17th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.